Lord, we thank you for that love that you have for us, the love that you demonstrated for us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, it's our desire to live and walk in a manner worthy of that amazing sacrifice. Lord, it's our desire to love you with a whole heart. As we sang, Lord, not a divided heart. One that is fully focused on you. One that is fully devoted to you. And Lord, we confess that so many times our heart can become divided. So Lord, we simply confess that to you and ask that you that you would that you would speak to us tonight and wherever we are, whatever situation we face. Lord, that as we humbly come to you and confess our weakness, our sin, Lord, your, your word tells us that you are faithful, that you forgive us of all of our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, we come with that heart right now because Lord, we want to hear from you tonight. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this place where we can gather in the middle of our weeks. We can set this time aside, Lord, and just ask that you minister to us, speak to us, change us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening. Please have a seat and grab your Bibles. First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 18. A few weeks ago, we were introduced to the main character, if you would, in the book of First Samuel, and that's David. We've seen how the first king, Saul, the, the one that, again, was, was God chose, but chose in a manner that you know, would be after man's choice, and, and how he so quickly failed, and, and God said that he would take the kingdom from first his family and then from Saul and give it to a different man, give it to someone else, one after his own heart. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that that man is David. He was anointed the youngest son of Jesse. And then last week we saw that when he went to go check on the battle that was going on, or the battle that wasn't going on as we talked last week, uh, and Goliath when he was standing giving out his challenge to the, the Israelite army that David stood up and he defeated Goliath. And, and then after that the, the, the armies of Israel had this great rout of the Philistines led by David and came back to the, to the tent where Saul was, carrying the head of Goliath with him, and there was an exchange as we finish up. Saul said to him, verse 58 of chapter 17, "'Whose son are you, young man?' And David answered, "'I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite.'" Chapter 18, "'Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul "'that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. We're going to be taking a look, if you would, tonight at three different, three different characters, the same three that we've looked at a little bit in the last few weeks. We see, we see David, obviously, and Saul, but first we're going to take a look at Jonathan. Again, 
Saul's oldest son. We saw again a few weeks ago that when there was a battle that was going on again with the Philistines, the largest army that they had assembled to come against the Jewish, the Israelites, that Jonathan one day said to his armor bearer, who are these uncircumcised Philistines and what are they doing in our territory? Let's go take care of it. And the two of them went up. And this man, again, full of, full of God's spirit that just guiding and leading him and again to a great victory. And we see now that Jonathan sees this same, this same characteristic in David, this man who loves God, the purposes of God, and w- was on the sidelines watching this whole thing take place with Goliath. And, and from his vantage point there, again, you, you have to wonder what's going through Jonathan's mind as he's seeing that. But then when it's all said and done, we see here that Jonathan's heart is knit with David's. And that's an interesting way of of saying that kindred spirit, we might say, where you see something in someone that reminds you of of something that is in you. And and a lot of times those common bonds will take place, and we can talk about that from a worldly standpoint. But here, talking in a spiritual standpoint, Jonathan said, that man has the anointing of God on him. Because nobody could do what David did, much less a boy that David did. Again, we're, we're guesstimating his age, probably 17, 18 years old, when he went out and defeated Goliath. But we see this in Jonathan now, that seeing this kindred spirit, their souls knit together. He has a love for God and his purposes. He said the same words as we talked last time. This uncircumcised Philistine, who is this in our territory? And that same passion, passion knit together. Notice, however, though, in Jonathan, and this is the point I want to drive home as we first start this study, who was the one who was supposed to be king after Saul from a worldly perspective? Jonathan. If there's anyone that's on the sidelines watching this happen that should be kind of freaking out a little bit and if anything you know trying to get real defensive it's Jonathan he's the one who has everything to lose from a worldly perspective but again he is focused on the things of God and no doubt knows what Samuel said about his father Saul that the king the kingdom will not pass through his line And if Samuel said that, speaking of God, it was probably at that moment Jonathan realized that he would not be the king. That there would be someone else someday that would rise up and be that king, the one that God would choose. And no doubt, Jonathan, again, knitting their souls together because he loved God and was looking for his purposes, following his purposes. When he saw David, he must have thought, that's got to be the guy. That's got to be the one. He recognized his anointing recognized his calling. He wasn't envious at all, as we see, and we'll continue to read. This wasn't a competition. And that's so important as we continue to walk through our Christian lives together. And this is going to be a theme that's kind of run through a couple of times as we circle through our study tonight. That, that instead of competing with one another, we need to be knit together. We need to be praying for one another. As we see here, it says, verse 2, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. We talked before, David was going back and forth for a while serving Saul and then going back to the sheep. From this time on, he's not going back to the sheep. He's not going back to Jesse. And I wonder what that report was like when one of the brothers had to go back and tell him what David did. That, would, that must have been a pretty cool story, although very humbling for the brother. 
It says verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. In that symbolic transfer, he takes off his royal robe, the one that shows that he is Saul's son, that he is the second in command, the to-be king, if you would, takes off his armor that he has, takes off his sword that he has. David will give this back to him. He doesn't go on and fight with that. that would have, Saul would have certainly seen that right away. But this was a symbolic gesture on Jonathan's part to say, I see this in you. I understand that you are the one and making that covenant with him, that one that is coming alongside him. And in that, I see again that kindred spirit, that, that support for David, not, not the competition, but the one that says, I see this anointing on you. And to cover him, if you would, putting that cloak over him, covering him in prayer, coming alongside him saying, I'll fight the battles with you. I will, we'll, we'll see in a few chapters, Jonathan even says, when you are king, I will gladly submit underneath you. And that just that heart of Jonathan that is there to encourage one another, to pray for one another as we go through these battles together. So David went out from there wherever Saul sent him and prospered. Now that word is interesting because it, it means to behave oneself wisely. If you have a King James Version, I think that's how it's translated. He, was, he behaved w wisely as he went out from there, again, with the wisdom of God. Again, this is a 17, 18-year-old shepherd boy that is now thrust into this thing, this position. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6, it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines. So he sets them out in, in charge of the army. They go out and they rout the Philistines. Now they're coming back in. And the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines and with joy and with musical instruments. This was common practice then when the men were returning from battle. The women would come out joyfully, of course, because their, their husbands are returning home. If in, in a devastating loss, as we saw back in the first part of 1 Samuel, there was mourning and, and, and great grief, but now there's been a great victory. So the women are out cheering and tambourines, and no doubt Saul, as he says, he come out to meet Saul, he's riding out, and he's thinking, man, look at all of this is coming. But the song that they played and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul said, that's very true. It's all because David. <laughs> then Saul became very angry. For this saying displeased him. It displeased him. It, disple it was true. Da Saul was sitting on the sideline not doing anything. David goes out and does this. It's true, yet it displeases him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. What a stark contrast from his son, Jonathan. He has this, Jonathan has this kindred spirit with David, 
Yet Saul has this jealous spirit within him, burning him up. And James tells us that jealousy is a, is a, is a horrible thing. It's, it can eat us up. And it, James devotes a, a big part of James, if you want to turn there real quickly with me, if you're quick to that, it's towards the end of your Bible, James chapter 3, because I want to read a, a section of this to you, because James devotes several verses to this. And he's writing to the Christian church. We can never forget that when we read through some of these books, and these chapters in the New Testament. He's writing to the Christian church. And it's so important that we, that we go through this from time to time and examine our own hearts. James says this, James chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. So often, people justify their feelings towards somebody else by saying, that should be me. That person shouldn't be in that situation. Again, David, this 17-year-old getting all of this credit, that should be me. I'm the king. This, and, and feeling like I'm perfectly justified in this behavior. But notice, God says that that is not from above. That's an earthly reaction, bitter jealousy. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Not a very pretty picture. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source? Chapter 4, he starts out, he continues. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And he continues. He goes on and on talking about this. And again, because jealousy and bitterness is such a, such a deceptive thing. And the root of bitterness goes down deep. We sang of that not being double-minded. He says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Saul was double-minded. Jealousy. We need to realize that, that in this Christian walk, none of us, none of us, are qualified to do anything that God calls us to do. We all, we all are relying completely on him to do that. And we see over and over that we are to run the race set before us. We are to focus on what God has called us to do. And if that is to slay thousands, then slay thousands. Don't, metaphorically, <laughs> not worrying about, well, wait a second, they're getting to slay 10,000. That should be me. Do you realize what happens in that process? First of all, as we look through James, it causes all sorts of dissensions 
and problems and, and undercutting all of these other things, but it robs you of your joy for fulfilling what God has called you to do. If we simply walk in the, in the road that God's called us to do and we focus on that, the joy, and we don't have to look any further than, again, Jonathan and Saul, who had the joy and who was robbed of their joy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. The New Living Translation uses the term cancer to the bones. It's amazing what we can do if we don't care who gets the credit. How God can use that. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again, it comes back to that one purpose, knit together in that one purpose, God's purposes. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. We see this just tearing Saul apart. And so often, and I, the reason I'm stressing this is because we, I see it happen all the time. Tearing people apart. Bitterness. Jealousy over what other people are doing. And feeling like I should be the one that is doing that. Instead of having a heart of Jonathan saying, it's obvious that God has called you to this. I'll come alongside you. Verse 10. He, it, from, with suspicion from that day on. Again, no peace in that, constantly living with that going on. Verse 10, now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and a spear was in Saul's hand. Now if you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this same thing that it was said that, a, that an evil spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. And I shared with you at that time that, that I believe what that is, is an evil spirit, not from the Lord, but that the Lord allowed an evil spirit to come against Saul. Most, most commentators believe that that's the case. God does not do evil, but he allows certain things to take place. Interesting, I came across this today and it's the literal translation of that verse right there says that a spirit from the Lord was evil to Saul. I was thinking that, hmm. A spirit, a spirit from the Lord, a spirit from Yahweh, was evil to Saul. Was literally made miserable Saul, you know, as to how that, that phrase plays out. And it's interesting. I'm not changing my view necessarily, but it's interesting because I believe that this, this also is true if we look at it from this point. A spirit of the Lord came to Saul and said, David's the king. David is the king. Speaking truth. That same truth comes to Jonathan and what happens? He says, he's the king. I'll support him. I'll do whatever. That's, that same thing, that truth comes to Saul and it drives him crazy. 
It drives him out of his mind. And somebody that's out of their mind, raving in the house, it's not good that they have a spear in their hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. <laughs> there again, David, as we continue to look at, at, at David through this whole process, twice. I don't know about you, but once is enough. He throws it at me one time. I, I'm, I'm not thinking it's an accident, you know. I've been, I've been accused of giving the people the benefit of the doubt way too many times, but throwing a spear, I'm, I'm getting out. David didn't. This happens twice. Notice it says, now Saul was afraid of David. David didn't fear Saul. Saul was afraid of David. And it tells us why the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. We saw back in chapter 15, Verses 27, 27, it says, as Saul turned to go, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, let the, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul knows that this has been torn from him. So it tells us here that, that, he, that, the Lord, that, that he was afraid of David. He's fighting David, but who's he really fighting? He's fighting the Lord. And again, so often that is the case, and that's the frustration of so many people as they continue to come against the, the work of God, thinking they're coming against someone. And again, it's that root of jealousy and bitterness that is inside them. They're really fighting against God. And you got to wonder what, what David is thinking during this process. I mean, he, his whole goal, and we're going to see as we read through this whole process, there's going to be a time a couple of years ahead of where we are right now that he has a chance to kill Saul. Saul is right in front of him. He could have killed him. Nobody would have known except David's men that he was the one who killed him, gotten out of it totally. And that's not David's heart. David spares his life as Saul continues to chase him down. So he's thinking, I don't understand. I've, I've gone out and I've defeated this enemy. I've submitted to you everything that you're asking me to do, and yet these spears are coming at me. And it's easy to focus on that. It's easy to focus on the ones throwing the spears. But notice what it says. We're going to skip ahead real, real quick. Verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David. But how hard is it to focus on that sometimes? It's focus on the, the fact that you have that support and everything when it's so easy to focus on the ones that are poking, the ones that are throwing the spears. Saul was afraid of David. And so often again, that's the case of when people are lashing out, when they are fighting out, when they are the ones that are, that are bitterness and the gossip and the slanderers, those, they fear the other person because they see God in that other person. The Lord was with David even when the spears were flying. Sometimes again, we can question that. 
God, have I, have I done something wrong? Have you left me alone? Have you abandoned me? Because these spears are flying. They're coming from every direction. Again, like we talked about on, on Sunday, you know, Storm 101, Storm 102, you know, we can get to that point. Lord, did, did you forget about me? No, the Lord is with David, even in the midst of that. Therefore, because he couldn't kill him, Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Now, that's not because Saul is now thinking, okay, I can't kill him, I may as well promote him. He's putting him out there because he's, as we'll see, his intention is to have David killed. Hopefully the Philistines will kill him. David was prospering in all his ways. There's that again. He's, he's acting more wisely. So it, it, go, it moves from that he prospered, that he was, was wise in his dealings, to now he's wise in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. Again, this isn't David. This is, this is God working in David. The Spirit of God, the wisdom of God working in David. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. He sees this continued success and it continues to burn deep. All Saul would have had to do from the very beginning, as we've talked a couple of times, but it bears repeating, is once he realized that this, had been, this was taking place, that it was because of his own sin, because of his own actions, that this was being taken away and given to somebody else, if he would have simply said, God, forgive me, I have totally blown this, I... I, I, you're right, I don't deserve this mantle anymore. It belongs to someone else. Let me serve that person. Can you imagine what God could have done with Saul as the commander of David's army? Yet his heart continually gets harder and harder. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife, only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand will not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So again, he's going to finally make good on the promise he made for the one who kills Goliath, I'm going to give the hand of my daughter in marriage. He's going to finally make good on that. But again, his intentions aren't because he wants to be a noble man, he wants to have have David killed as he goes out. He says, you just go out and fight my battles for me. But notice verse 18. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? Now, if you remember last week when we were going through the time when David was going out to the front lines and he was talking to his brothers and he was asking the question, what did, what did Saul say? that the person gets who kills Goliath. And it says that he, you know, he gets the hand of his daughter and that you don't have to pay taxes in the family and all of that, that stuff, remember? And I've heard again, people have said that David was doing this from selfish ambition. Here, that blows that all up right here. Here, he's trying to give, get what he was promised to get. And he says, who am I? I don't deserve that. Who am I to be married to the king's daughter? Again, the humility of David. And I point that out again because, again, drawing back to this idea of the, the bitterness and the, and the gossip that can so easily spread, people say, well, they, they just want this for a certain position. They just want this so they can be recognized. 
they just want this for this reason. And that, that can spread right around. It went from David's brother, started spreading around to the people that here's David, I know the intentions, he says, of your heart. You know, you're, you're, you're the wickedness of your heart, his brother said. No, he didn't. David's heart was pure in all of this. He just wanted to defend the name of God. Yet it spreads all around, and here we see so it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should be given to David. She was given to Adriel, the Mahethalite, for a wife. So Saul backs out on that deal that he was trying to make and does this. But verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him. Interesting. Getting that whole family dynamic there, you know. I get what, <laughs> what kind of relation? What kind of dad is that? But what? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give my daughter to him just so she can trip him up, just so she can be a snare to him. Using his daughter in this whole thing, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Again, his whole goal is to have David killed. Therefore, Saul said to David, "For a second time, you may be my son-in-law today." Then Saul commanded his servants. Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. <laughs> so Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. He said, you think this is some small thing? to become the king's son-in-law. Again, look at the humility of David. He's, he is the anointed king, the next king. And he's saying, you guys have no idea the weight of, of this. Plus, I don't have anything to give. I'm a poor shepherd boy. I don't have a dowry to pay. That was traditional at that time and still is in a lot of Middle Eastern countries to pay a dowry to the, 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 the man, to pay a dowry to the, the bride's parents. And a lot of times that is just in case you know, there's a divorce or I die, this will be able, you will be able to help support her for this, you know, and giving a dowry. And he's saying, what can I give the king as a dowry for her? Saul then said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Interesting request. Glad that's changed. <laughs> Again, Saul, Saul's planning for David to be killed in this process, obviously. He's saying you have to go kill 100 Philistines, obviously. The Philistines aren't just going to give them to David. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. David's kind of like, oh, that's all? <laughs> Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, and he and his men, and struck down 200 men of the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king. In full number. That seems to indicate somebody counted them. I didn't write this. This is right here. 
that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave Michael his daughter for a wife. And again, you got to wonder what Michael's thinking about all of this. That's my dowry? Anyway, we move on. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. It sees, you know, everything just keeps lining up for David, and he can see the hand of God in everything. No matter what he's trying to do, David is thriving. David is making wise choices. David is honoring God. God is blessing David. And again, instead of having his heart finally soften and says, all right, uncle, I give up, his heart becomes harder and harder, even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely. And again, that's the same word that we've seen that prospering those couple other times before. And he continues to grow in this wisdom and, and his prosperity in the Lord as he continues to follow Then all of the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. Now here we see Saul raising the ante. Up until this point, this is all going on inside of Saul's heart. He's trying to kill David secretly. He was alone in a room throwing a spear at him. He's conniving and coming up with these ideas to have David put out on the front lines to have David go out to battle. This was all out just just inside his heart, but now it turns to where he's pulling others in. He's bringing others into this, this plot that he has, pulling others into his scheme. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. One person stood up. Again, the one who has most to gain by David's death is the one who stands up for what is right. One who says, I'm not going to go along with this. I can't go along with this. Even if it means I have to stand up against my own dad, I can't go along with this. And I have to put an end to it. And so often, that might be the case. You might be the only one in a group of people where gossip starts up. And this could be at your workplace, it could be anywhere. Somebody starts talking negatively about somebody, you might be the only one, but you need to stand up and do the right thing. And the right thing, the way to stop gossip most every time is do exactly what Jonathan did in verse four, spoke well of David. They start speaking negatively, you start saying positive things about that person. And if there's any other Christians in that circle, the Holy Spirit hopefully will convict them of that and they will join in with you. But that's the way to stop that right in its tracks is you just disarm it or walk away from it. I won't hear it. I won't listen to it. Do not give ear to gossip, putting an end to it. Jonathan spoke well of David. 
to Saul, his father, and said to him, do not let the king sin against his servant David. We can't be afraid of calling it what it is. It's sin. And he, call, he points it, gives it right to his dad and straight to him. This is sin, dad. You can't do this. Since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you, for he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. We'll see that his word and his vow are meaningless. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in the, his presence as formerly. So reunited here, but, verse 8, when there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. David goes out, has great success again. God's hand is on him. No doubt that song keeps playing. David's killed his probably hundreds, thousands by now, you know. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So, Dave, so Michael let David down through a window and went out and fled and escaped. So he runs away. Saul tries to kill him again. Third time's a charm. Okay, not sticking around anymore. Takes off, runs home, but she understands. She must have heard through either Jonathan or someone else that there was this plot then to kill him, so you got to get out of here. She lets him down through the window. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed. Now, I have that circled with a question mark from a time that I'd read that before. Household idol. What is David doing with a household idol? Now, it doesn't tell us. That, that word can mean a statue of some sort or something like that, not necessarily a worshiped thing. And she's the daughter of the king. She may have had something like that. We don't know. But something that she puts into the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair on its head and covered it with cloth. So she puts this thing in the bed, puts this goat hair there to make it look like David's in the bed. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. So she just goes, says he's sick, maybe said, look, he's right there in bed. And they looked and they saw the goat hair thing and said, man, he is sick. You know what? He looks horrible, as a matter of fact. You know, he's got goat head disease or something, and I, did, I, I don't want to touch that. Are you kidding? I don't want to go anywhere near that. So they go back to Saul and say, I, I'm not going in there. He's really, they say, he said, well, bring him. Just don't even, don't touch him. Bring the whole bed. Just bring it here, and I'll kill him. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed and the quilt of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? So 
Michael initially trying to save David through this process, but now she's saving herself. She's lying and saying he, he threatened to kill me, so I did this so that he could, he could get away, but he wouldn't kill me. Verse 18, now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers, and messengers is a kind way of saying assassins, to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel had this group of prophets that, that is there. I mean, he's not in the full-time ministry anymore, but no doubt pouring into these young men, they're prophets here, prophesying, and that word can mean singing praises. It doesn't necessarily mean foretelling future events. Singing praises could be. They saw them with, with Samuel prophesying, standing and presiding over them. The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. I, I love that picture that you, that you get there. Here's these guys. They're coming to take take David away, to kill him. As soon as they get close, the Spirit of God is all over this place. They drop their weapons and they start praising God. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again a third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. He proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all day, all that day and all that night. Therefore it is said, it is Saul, is Saul also among the prophets. Now, not laying physically totally naked. He took off his kingly garments. He was down to his undergarments, if you would. Just like any other man. I mean, he's no longer king. He's stripped himself of all of that, again, under the, the, the Holy the, the God, the Spirit of God coming upon him. And he starts praising God too. I, I just, again, I love this. And this is such a beautiful picture that we need to understand that even though it might seem like everything is against us, that there's no way out, here's David, he runs to his last, his last thing that he can think of at this particular time, and that's run to Samuel. The one who, by the way, he probably said, dude, you anointed me, you're the one who did, you're, you're the one who started this whole thing a couple years ago, I need some help now, I don't know what's going on, he's trying to kill me, he's chasing me everywhere. And then they just start praising the Lord. And, and then all of a sudden, now here comes the armies. They know where he is. He's not hiding. He's, he's right out in the open. And I just say that because God overrules man's plan. If we are walking in God's will, if we are following his will for us, if he chooses to take us home, glory to hallelujah, right? But if not, he's going to take care of it. He's going to overrule his way. And I, I, I love it. He did, you know, David didn't have to stand up and defend himself. They started praising the Lord. It's interesting, though. I'd love to tell you that after verse 24, where he takes off his kingly garments, he lay, lays down there prostrate in front of, in front of, of uh, 
Samuel and praising God that, that everything changed. That Saul became a godly man. That Saul surrendered everything, but he doesn't. He goes right back to being hard-hearted. And that's a lesson for all of us. Again, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said that there's you know, the wheat and the tares next to each other. It's possible to have a, an amazing religious experience and come away unchanged. We have to be careful that we don't get caught up in the experience, but it, that it's truly the, the, the change that we seek and that, that we desire after because the amazing religious experience that Saul experiences here, but he leaves totally unchanged. We see, and we won't get into chapter 20 other than the first part of the first next verse, then David fled from Naoth and Ramah. He went there and basically all that Samuel was able to do was maybe to encourage him, but not fix his problem, not be able to to, to solve it in any way. If anything, he's just going to delay Saul for a couple of days while David can continue to run. This is the beginning. David is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years old at the time this is all taking place here. He won't be king until he's 30. This is the beginning of a 10-year wilderness exile that we are going to look through over the coming weeks as we continue to study. And we, I don't, you ask yourself questions when you look at something like this. Why didn't, why didn't God just take care of Saul right away? Why didn't he just remove Saul immediately? David, I mean, he's 20, he's old enough to just put him right in. Because he wasn't ready yet. God had work to do in David. And one of the works that he probably had to do in David was to remove the Saul in David. We've talked about this this last weekend. We have to be careful that we, that we, that we don't become judgmental in the fact that, you know, that, that, that and we for, neglect the fact that there's, there's the capability of being a hypocrite in every one of us. That there's a Pharisee in, just waiting dormant inside of every one of us. And and there, there had to be some things that needed to be taken care of and removed from David through this process. And again, it's not a short process. It's going, to take, it's going to take 10 years. And we see the things that God is even stripping away from David through this whole process. His family. First of all, again, it says that he didn't go back to see Jesse anymore. He, that, that's been taken away. His his wife, his, his, his home, even, even his mentor. None of those places, he's, God is taking away every one of those, those things. He'll be reunited with, with all of them later, but God is doing a work of preparation in David. And I see as he's continuing, continuing to remove all of these things and David continuing to look for help all of these places, he's going to finally get to that point where he realizes his only help is the Lord. That is the only place that he can turn. That is the only one to completely lean on. It's a time of preparation. And nobody wants to know that the time of preparation that we're in is going to take 10 years. Nobody, nobody wants that. 
we all want, you know, people ask me, I've been, Christina and I have been married 17 years now, and, and people ask me, do you speak Spanish? Which I should, but no. And the reason is because they haven't come out with a Spanish pill yet. As soon as they do, I'm taking it and I'm speaking Spanish. I, it, I just, I, I want that, I, I'm lazy. I want to do it that way. But the, the preparation sometimes, especially for a great work that God wants to do, isn't a quick pill that we can take. It's not something that, that is an overnight thing, that we just wake up one day and boom, we're ready. Preparation. We can almost hear again in this that David, it, though it's not recorded for us here, but it's throughout the Psalms, God, why are you silent? Why are you not hearing my cry? And we talked about that on, on Sunday, and again, it just comes back around now. Just God's silence does not mean his absence. His silence sometimes is just that to draw you just a little bit closer, to bring you in just a little bit tighter. And I get, I get a text from my daughter every once in a while, hey, Dad, would you transfer $20 into my checking account? And I don't answer it. <laughs> Why? It's not because I don't want to give her the $20. It's because I want her to come ask me in person. I want to see her. She's texting me from her bedroom. I mean, all she's got to do is walk out into. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I want that. It, it doesn't. My heart doesn't change. I just, I, I want to have that communication, that face to face, and that's that's what God wants. We're going to see that there's many times in this this wilderness exile preparation time where God and David are alone together. That face to face time. Read Psalm 59. Got homework. I was going to read it. We don't have time. Psalm 59, it tells us. I'll highlight it. It says, the beginning, the, the introduction, Psalm 59. It says, a psalm of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. This was a prayer that David prayed that night. And he recorded it later, probably, Maybe that night, but probably not. But later on, as he recalled that night and the prayer that he cried out. And it cries out initially, deliver me. Deliver me. But the end, and I'll read the last two verses, verse 16 and 17. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. How are you going to sing if you're dead? He knows he's going to be delivered. He's trusting in God for that. I shall sing for your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. It means he knows, I'm going to make it till morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. The God who shows me loving kindness. Speaking that thing that isn't yet as though it was because he knows who God is. He knows the God he serves. It says in Jeremiah 29, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed. How'd you like to get that note? 
There was prophets that were saying, don't worry, this will be over soon. God said, they aren't from me. This is going to be a process. And that process for the children of Israel was 70 years. But he goes on to say, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not your calamity, to give you a future and a hope. I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good. They're not to destroy you. I didn't put you in this wilderness to destroy you. I put you in this to prepare you. I put you in this to grow you. I put you here because I have greater plans for you there. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. He said previously to that, he says, you're going to be here a while. Grow here. Prosper here. If you read through that, I have brought you here. I sent you into this exile. God is sending David into this exile because he's evil and wicked and needs to be purged of his sin? No, as a matter of fact, as he writes in Psalm 59, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything wrong. But God had a work to do in David, and he never left him alone, and he'll never leave us alone. As we continue through this study in the weeks to come, We'll continue to remind ourselves of that because, again, it gets really tough for David. This is, this is a cakewalk right now compared to what it's going to be like. But God has his purposes and his plans. And he'll never leave us alone. And he will always be everything that we need. That's Psalm 59. As you read through that, he's everything, everything David needs. And he's everything that we need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promise of your word that you will never leave us and never forsake us. For the fact that we can hold on to the, the truth that you have a plan for us and it's a good one. It's not for our harm. It's not for our destruction. But it's for your glory. And Lord, often because of that, we need a lot of preparation. Lord, we want to do great things for you. We want your name to be famous. So Lord, mold us and shape us. Lord, give us the heart of Jonathan to come alongside others. Even others that, that have what our flesh wants. Lord, we want to crucify our flesh. Give us the heart of David who had a heart after you that was so humble so patient. Lord, we want to identify any area of us that is a Saul. Show that to us, Lord. We confess it. We deal with that right now. Because we, we want that put to death, Lord, so that we can live for you. We don't want to be double-minded. We won't, don't want a divided heart, Lord. We want a heart that is sold out completely for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.